0: it would be difficult to overstate the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, it would not be overly dramatic to say that if Jesus is dead, then so is the Christian faith. And from the very beginning, Christians have recognized the stakes are that high. That is what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth, a portion of which we hope to read, study, and consider together this morning. Paul said that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we, Christians, are to be pitied. Believing in Jesus, and in particular, believing that he got up from the dead, is for Christians a conscious, considered, and careful choice. Given that our, our culture and society still makes space for the celebration of Easter, and even in some ways orients our cultural calendar around Easter, around its celebration through, through things like spring break, I thought that it would be appropriate for us to consider the importance of what happened on that Sunday morning long ago. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, um, if, if you are skeptical that Jesus got up from the dead, and you think we Christians are really weird, uh, and to be pitied for believing this stuff, then let me say thank you for coming this morning. I'm, I'm glad that you are here. I, I don't know that I will convince you of the truth and reality of the resurrection this morning, but I do hope that our time studying God's word together will clarify what we as Christians believe about Jesus' resurrection and why we believe in the resurrection. I'm not going to hide from the fact ...that it is as miraculous and as supernatural as it sounds. I'll admit that miracles do not make sense to our modern minds. But the God of the Bible is the God of miracles. He is the God of the impossible. And there's just too much solid evidence for Christians not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So friend, thank you. Thank you for coming. I want to encourage you to openly consider the claims of the Bible on this matter. And talk with your friends and family members uh, about it afterward. The whole of our salvation is connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning, it's my desire that we consider this ultimately important and glorious truth afresh. We're going to do that by looking at some of what Paul says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But we're going to also skip around to a couple other passages of scripture to see this truth too. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 23. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find this passage beginning on page 961. 961 of the Bibles provided. As I said, we're going to be kind of skipping around a lot, so just a a word to the wise. When I tell you to, to turn over to a different passage, just go ahead and keep one finger tucked right here in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Because we're going to come back to it. It's going to be kind of our home base. Also, if you're not used to using a Bible, uh, there's no need to panic. I'll try and give you the page numbers in in the Bibles provided. And when I mention a chapter and a verse, the chapter that I'm referring to is the larger number there in the printed text. And the verse that I'm referring to is the smaller number there in the text. I hope that will help you uh, to find your way around. As we read this portion of Paul's letter, we need to come to understand a little bit about Paul and a little bit about this church uh, that, he, that received his letter. Paul, you see, he had been running around telling as many people as possible about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, that is what he did in the city of Corinth, this church that's receiving this letter. He told anyone who would listen to him that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who secured salvation for sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. But here's the thing that you need to know about Paul. Paul wasn't always a believer. Before he was a devoted believer in Jesus, he was a devout unbeliever. Before Paul was a preacher, he was a persecutor. Before he was a messenger, he was a murderer. The book of Acts teaches us that Paul hated Christians and their message that Jesus got up from the dead. Paul was given authority by the Jewish religious leaders to seek out Christians and punish them. He oversaw the stoning of one Christian named Stephen. So so what changed for Paul, or what changed Paul? What turned him from a murderer to a messenger? What led him out of a life of persecuting Christians to a life of preaching that Jesus had been raised? Well, Acts chapter 9 tells us that the resurrected Jesus personally confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. The living Christ met Paul face to face. And Paul mentions that personal appearance here in our text, in verse 8 of our text. Well, what do we need to know about this church in Corinth? Well, due to Paul's preaching and God's gracious working, a group of believers, a local church, was eventually established in the city of Corinth. Like all Christians and all Christian churches, The church in Corinth had problems. And so Paul wrote them a series of letters to try to help them. The church in Corinth, they struggled with tribalism around their favorite teachers, which resulted in division. They struggled with pride and arrogance. They struggled with sexual immorality and lawsuits. They struggled with selfishness. And they struggled with the idea of the resurrection itself. Some of the Corinthians struggled to believe that one day they would be resurrected or raised from the dead. Paul's approach in this chapter is to show the church in Corinth that not only is there good reason to believe that Jesus got up from the dead, but that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead guarantees their resurrection from the dead. So please follow along as I read now from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 23. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Let me try to summarize (laughs) what Paul has just said, what we've just read in one sentence. It rhymes, and I hope that will help you remember it. In these 23 verses, here it is. Here's the one sentence. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the expectation of the Old Testament and the message of the new. Because Jesus got up from the dead, you will too. Let me give you that again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the expectation of the Old Testament and the message of the New. Because Jesus got up from the dead, you will too. If you're taking notes, we're going to unpack that sentence through four points. The resurrection and the Old Testament witness. The resurrection and the New Testament witnesses. The resurrection and Jesus. And the resurrection and us. Let's begin with our first point. The resurrection and the Old Testament witness. You'll notice there in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul tells us that Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And there Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. What Paul is telling us is that Jesus' resurrection brought about the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, in order for Jesus to be raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that means that Jesus had to be dead. In fact, before we can even contemplate Jesus' resurrection from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, we have to contemplate his death. One of the things that I hope stood out to you about those 23 verses that we read from 1 Corinthians 15 was the haunting mention of death. Throughout these 23 verses, death is a dominating, destructive, and devastating theme. Why does Paul talk so much about death in a chapter on Jesus' resurrection? Because until Jesus was raised from the dead, death reigned as mankind's undefeated foe. Until Jesus got up from the dead, and unless God divinely intervened and took um, someone immediately to heaven, death always had the last word. When God first created the world... As we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, first two chapters of the Bible, we learn that God created the first man and the first woman and set them in a beautiful garden. They were to love and serve God and have a glorious relationship with God. God gave man one rule. He said that Adam and Eve could eat of every tree in the garden except one. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God promised that first couple that should they eat of the fruit of that tree, they would surely die. That's what we learn from Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God told Adam and Eve up front that the punishment for disobedience was death. And sadly, Adam and Eve disobeyed. That's what sin is. It's, It's disobedience. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They ate the fruit of that forbidden tree. And sin, therefore, came into the world through Adam's sin. And because of Adam's sin, death spread to all mankind, just as God had promised That is what Paul is saying in the first half of verse 21 you see there when he says, For as by a man came death. And it's also what he's getting at there in the first half of verse 22 when he says, For as in Adam all die. When Adam brought sin into the world, he brought death into the world. All who descended from him by ordinary generation would sin like him and die like him. And the evidence of Adam's sin is all around us in this world because the death of our fellow man is all around us, isn't it? In God's mercy, shortly after Adam's sin, God promised to send a redeemer to rescue man from the curse of sin and death. God promised that he would send someone to defeat this foe. Mankind needed a redeemer who would not die, or better yet, who would not stay dead. And so lead repentant sinners to everlasting life. That is what God promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he said that he would send a son to crush the serpent and sin. And God, he progressively unfolded that plan through the Old Testament scriptures in the history of Israel, recounted in the pages of the Old Testament. And a crucial part of that plan involved the resurrection of God's son from the dead. Now, Paul, when he is speaking here in 1 Corinthians 15, he doesn't tell us what specific Old Testament scriptures he had in mind. Frankly, I think that he's probably thinking about the Old Testament scriptures in kind of a global perspective. In their totality, this is what they proclaim. But it's also not hard to see the promise of Christ's death in Isaiah 53, which we've already mentioned here in this service this morning. So please keep one finger here in 1 Corinthians 15 and turn over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, and I want us to look at verses 8 and 9. That's on page 614 of the Bibles provided. 614. We could read the whole chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. But just consider verses 8 and 9. And As I, rem- as I read these verses, remember what Paul has just said. He said that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he was buried. Okay, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 8 and 9. See, it's not hard to see how Jesus' death on the cross and his burial in the grave fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah. But turning back to 1 Corinthians 15, because you kept your finger there, right? Turning back to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, remember that Paul said in verse 4 that he was also raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Where do we find that in the Old Testament Scriptures? Oh, we, we read earlier from the book of Jonah this morning, didn't we? Many of you probably love the story of Jonah. It's a, it's a fantastic story, right? Who doesn't love that story? A prophet in rebellion against God gets tossed overboard, swallowed up by a great fish, and then three days later he spat out. It's a wonderful story. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus said that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Which, of course, implies that Jesus would then come out of the earth just as Jonah came out of the fish. It seems that Jonah's own experience was a prophetic parable. It was a type and a shadow of the substance which was to come in Jesus Christ. You know, the clearest Old Testament scripture on the Messiah's resurrection is probably found in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, where David foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, saying, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Imagine Jesus praying that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 25 to 34, the apostle Peter confirmed that Psalm chapter 16, verse 10 was indeed fulfilled, that the promise of that scripture was brought to its telos and goal in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In accordance with that Old Testament scripture, God raised Jesus up from the grave. He didn't abandon him. He didn't leave his soul to corruption. And we could keep going. With other Old Testament scriptures which anticipate the resurrection of the Messiah. What we need to understand is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was so important that in advance, God promised through the Old Testament, that it would take place. God wanted his people to have a category for the resurrection of his Messiah. God planned the course of history, and he inscripturated his promises thousands of years before their fulfillment so that his people would know that Jesus Christ would get up from the dead. Friends, brothers and sisters, if Jesus' resurrection teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is faithful. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we've got proof that God not only makes promises, but that he keeps them. We have more than a faint hope when it comes to faith. We've got more than a pretty good reason to believe. We have certainty in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection was a historic event foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament witness spoke of Jesus' coming resurrection. And if that isn't enough, Paul goes on to point out in verses 5 to 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that these historic events had a great many personal witnesses. Did you notice that? Let's turn now and consider our our second point. The resurrection and the New Testament witnesses. The resurrection of the New Testament witnesses. You see there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 9, we see that there are witnesses to verify and corroborate this history. In other words, this history that was promised to come to pass, there were, there were witnesses to it. There are witnesses who have experienced it. And Paul, he names them off. Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter to the 12 disciples, to to more than 500 at one time, Paul says, most of whom are still alive, uh, and and to James, and to finally to Paul himself. This letter is from someone who has seen with his own eyes the resurrected and living Christ. Take note of this. This event, this history is so important that God did not simply entrust its testimony to one person, but to many people. This makes their testimony all the more valuable, doesn't it? By naming off all of these witnesses, it's as if Paul is saying, you know what? Go ahead and ask them. See if that great mass of people have a different story. Go ahead and ask these people if they saw Jesus Christ. Ask them if they touched him and ate with him. It's as if Paul is saying, go ahead, test the truthfulness of my claim that Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. If Jesus Christ's resurrection weren't true, then there would be serious discrepancies in what these witnesses proclaim. A true skeptic could prove that the resurrection was a false claim, if indeed it was a false claim. But it wasn't a false claim. And that's why Paul is is really beyond confident that they'll all testify to the same truth, that Jesus Christ got up from the dead. There wasn't just one witness, there were many witnesses. There were more than 500 witnesses. And in any just court today, that would be an open and shut case. For now, let's just look at one eyewitness account. We've kind of considered Paul's, but let's Look at one gospel account which recounts this historic event. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10. In the Bibles provided, it's page uh, 906. John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10. Page 906. And let me just kind of bring you up to speed with how how John has uh, recounted the events so far. Jesus, he was delivered over by Judas and denied by Peter. He was interrogated by the Jewish and Roman authorities and found to be innocent. It's one of the striking things about the gospel accounts. They all say, actually, he was not guilty. And yet, the people cried out for him to be crucified. On the cross, he was crowned with thorns and put to death. And John, he carefully recounts Jesus' death. John notes that Jesus has breathed his last. That the Roman soldiers pierced his side with a sword. To ensure that he was dead, that that blood and water flowed from his side. Thus further indicating that he in fact died. John carefully followed the path of Jesus' dead body until it was laid in a stone-sealed tomb. That was on Friday. His body remained there on Friday and Saturday. It also remained there on Sunday. And as the sun begins to rise on the first day of the week, on Sunday, Mary Magdalene begins to make her way to the tomb. Let's read John's account now. also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Chapter 20 of John's gospel opens by noting that it was the first day of the week. In fact, all four New Testament gospels Record that detail. And when you move out from the Gospels, this phrase, the first day of the week, is often connected with the worship gatherings of Christians. It's later called the Lord's Day. The time marker of the first day of the week was not only important for establishing a future pattern for Christian worship, it was also and more important for establishing Christ's resurrection on the third day. Verse 1 assumes that the tomb was covered by a large stone. And when it says that Mary Magdalene saw that the stone ...had been taken away, we sense this surprise in her. When Mary sees that the stone is taken away, she's surprised and runs and tells Peter and the other disciple... ...who we know to be John, the author of this gospel. Notice that Mary's first thought is not... ...it's not that Jesus got up from the dead, but that his body had been moved. Many people have tried to say that Jesus' disciples robbed his grave... ...but that doesn't make any sense of what we see here... It doesn't make any sense because they didn't know where his body was. Others will say that somebody else stole Jesus' body. Again, this is hard to believe. Not only was there a massive stone in front of the tomb, but there were also guards in front of the tomb, guards that lived through the resurrection of Jesus. Still others will say that Jesus, he merely swooned on the cross, that he he didn't really die, that he regained strength in the cool of his tomb. But does this really make sense of a man who was beaten within an inch of his life? His skull crowned with piercing thorns, nailed on a cross of wood with spikes, suffocated and then pierced with a sword in his side? In his physical condition, would he really have been able to roll a stone away that took several men to move and then take on the Roman soldiers who were guarding his tomb? None of those explanations make sense of the Savior's absence. None of them make sense of the empty tomb. And what's striking to me about these theories developed over the years is that people really were trying to make sense of the empty tomb precisely because it was empty. Frankly, the the gospel writer's accounts are the most plausible, honest, and authentic accounts. Just take a look at at Mary's example, her, her thought that Jesus' body has been moved. You don't put that statement on the, the lips of one of Jesus' followers and first eyewitnesses of his resurrection if you're trying to perpetuate a lie. Right? And you don't do it repeatedly. Mary's actually going to repeat this. Where have, you, where have you laid his body? She's going to say it again. The only reason that you put this kind of statement on the lips of one of Jesus' disciples and first followers, if you're accurately recounting what really happened. John, he he doesn't give us a neat and cleaned up picture of the disciples of Jesus. We get an honest picture of real human beings. We see men bumbling around trying to figure out what has happened and, and women who are confused by the events. What real human being wouldn't be stunned and confused by Jesus' absence from the tomb? Here through John's eyes, we are seeing the first clues that Jesus was in fact raised from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most factually plausible explanation for the empty tomb, and that's because it really happened in history. We've considered the importance of the resurrection in relation to the Old Testament and the New Testament witnesses. We now need to consider the importance of the resurrection for Jesus. Did you know that the resurrection was important for Jesus? It wasn't important merely because he had died and needed to be brought back to life. But it was important because the resurrection vindicated him and the claims he made to be the son of God and savior of the world. So let's consider our, our third point, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, uh, you'll notice, if you flip back there, if you're not there already, you'll notice that Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Because God is a holy and just God, because he is sinless and righteous, he cannot look upon sin or have it in his presence. He must punish sin. That is why God thrust Adam and Eve out of the garden following their sin. In fact, as a just judge, God must judge sin and punish it. And that is a problem for sinners. We have contravened God's Justice. We have broken his good laws. And just like our father Adam who disobeyed God's good command by eating the forbidden fruit, we too have disobeyed God. We are guilty before God and stand under his just condemnation apart from Jesus. We need our sins to be pardoned, forgiven. We need to be brought into God's loving favor. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 if you're using one of your, the bibles provided that's on page 992 1st timothy chapter 3 verse 16 when jesus went to the cross we need to understand this when jesus went to the cross he was condemned in the place of sinners though he was innocent free of sin he suffered the judicial punishment of the guilty he was paid the wages of sin. But as our, our brother John mentioned a few weeks ago, what, does the, what are the wages? What, what's that due, that payment due to perfect righteousness? If the wages of sin is death, what's due to perfect righteousness? Jesus was paid the wages of sin in his death. He took the punishment that sinners deserved and he would remain dead until he was vindicated. Until he was justified and declared to be righteous in God's sight. That's what justification is. Justification is a judicial declaration that a person is not only free of guilt, but that he is in fact righteous. Jesus needed to be justified. He needed to be declared righteous. Not because he had done anything wrong. Not because he had was guilty. But because he had done everything right. Right. Because he was righteous, he was innocent, and it needed to be announced to the world that Jesus was sinless. And that's what his resurrection was. It was the open acknowledgement and acquittal of Jesus Christ. More than that, it was the public vindication of his good name. That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, take a look at that verse now, writes that he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. This is undoubtedly a reference to Jesus' bodily resurrection. In your Bibles, there's probably a little footnote next to that word vindicated. If you look down in your footnotes, you'll probably see the word justified. The word in the original Greek is dikaios, which means literally to justify. Jesus was holy, yet on the cross he was made sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. But as long as he remained under the power of death, the righteous character of his person and work remained in question. If Jesus was allowed to remain dead, then we would have every reason to believe that he was a sinner and therefore not the Savior. But the removal of death was the confirmation, vindication, justification, declaration that he was in fact righteous. That he was, in fact, free from sin. Once again, turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Again, that's page 961 of the Bible provided. And when you get there, just take a look at verses 21 and 22. Consider verses 21 and 22 where Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man, this is Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also In Christ shall all be made alive. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we're all still in Adam. See, we're either in Adam or we're in Jesus. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we're all still in Adam and therefore under the sentence of death. For we're in Adam, we're cursed and condemned. We need to be justified and declared righteous in God's sight. What is necessary for that justification to take place? We need to be united to the one who is righteous and is and has himself been justified. And that's what Jesus' resurrection is. Since Jesus Christ's righteous life was vindicated, since he has been declared to be just by his resurrection, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, so can we. As we receive his righteous life on our behalf by faith. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. He says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Unless Jesus was justified in God's sight by his resurrection from the dead. We have no hope of being justified and declared righteous in God's sight. If Christ has not been raised from the dead then we are still in our sins. But there's more. Like justification. Jesus' declaration. uh, Jesus' resurrection was a declaration. Of his sonship. That he was God's beloved son. Jesus' resurrection reveals. That he was not disowned. By his father. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. That's on page 939. Of the Bibles provided. Here we're thinking about the fact that Jesus. Is a child of God. And how we. Can become children of God. As I read Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Take special note of verse 4. Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Paul. A servant of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle. Set apart for the gospel of God. Which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. There's Paul saying again. This is all promised in the Old Testament. Concerning his son. The Old Testament is about his son. His son who was descended from David according to the flesh and, verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by, here's the means, by his resurrection for the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now perhaps it seems strange to you, but Jesus' resurrection is almost presented in terms of adoption. Almost presented in those terms. He receives a new title of Son that he had not possessed before his resurrection. Now, let me be clear. He was always God's son. He was and is the eternal son of God. We can see that in the beginning of verse 3. The Old Testament scriptures were were promising the coming of God's son. However, there is a movement that takes place. He is afresh in a new way, declared to be God's son by his resurrection from the dead. God's son, verse 3, was declared literally powerful son of God. By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared powerful Son of God by his resurrection. The resurrection was the, the means, as I said, of God's declaration. This declaration movement seems to have been promised in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and then reinforced in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. It was only after Jesus suffered the humiliation of the cross that God raised him from the dead, highly exalting him and what? bestowing upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, what? The Father. It's true that Jesus was always God's son, but now in his resurrected body, he is God's son in power. Death is no longer an undefeated foe. There is a more powerful power, and it is God's son. Only because he was declared to be God's son in power by his resurrection from the dead can we be declared to be sons and daughters of God through our faith union with Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we learn that all who receive Jesus, that is all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus Christ, by his resurrection, redeems us out from under the curse and condemnation of the law so that we might be adopted as sons. Unless Jesus himself was raised out from under the curse and condemnation of the law. As is seen in his death. We can't come out from it either. And therefore we can't be adopted as God's children. Unless Jesus was declared to be God's son in power. We can't be sons and daughters of God. In other words if Jesus Christ has not been raised and declared to be the son of God in power. Then we are still orphans. Still estranged from our heavenly father. And so shut out. Of his house. But he was raised. He was justified. He was declared son. And so we can be God's children. It is good news. It is good news that the Holy God receives sinners like us as his children. But let's be honest about what kind of people we are. We're liars and thieves we're greedy, we're mental adulterers, we commit murder in our hearts when we're angry, we're discontent with what God our Father has given us, and so we, we covet. We're not a particularly lovely, lovely people. We're sinners. And yet, sinners and people who recognize they are sinners are the only people who God makes His children. If you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and friend, I wonder what you think of this idea that God can be your father. You know, this is a massive difference between Christianity and the rest of the world religions. God has made us to relate to him as our loving heavenly father. He made us in his image to love and serve him and honor him, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, but but we've rejected him as our father. We've decided to live our own way rather than his. And that's, as I said, what the Bible calls sin. And because God is holy and loving and just, he must punish sin. In fact, because of our sin, we all stand in danger of facing God's just wrath against our sin forever. In hell. But in love, God sent forth his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully man and fully God. And he lived the life that we have not lived. A life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He died the death that we deserve to face as a punishment for our sins, taking upon himself the sins and the punishment due to sins for all of those who'd ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him, announcing the approval of the work of his beloved Son. Friend, if you would turn from your sins and believe that Jesus lived and died and was raised for you, then you too will be adopted into God's family as his beloved child. Those who are children of God receive the joy of living forever with their loving Heavenly Father. Not only that, but today they receive the comfort of the presence of Christ in their lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to urge you to find out more about what it means to be a child in God's family. Please talk to someone about that today. Come and find me at the door after the service or speak with a Christian friend or family member that you've come with. Become a child of God today by faith in the powerful son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads to my fourth and final point, the resurrection and us. Please turn one last time back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, that's 961 of the Bibles provided. We've unpacked the first 11 verses of the chapter, but we also need to briefly reflect on verses 12 to 23. You know, reading verses 12 to 23 can be, um, can be a little bit confusing because Paul, he actually works back and forth between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. He says that if Jesus has not been raised, then we won't be raised. And he also says that if we're not going to be raised, then Jesus has not been raised. Paul's point is, is that there is an indissoluble connection between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. They, they can't be separated, Paul is saying. You, see, you can see particularly in verses 20 to 23 that Paul uses this really interesting metaphor. He uses a metaphor of a harvest and first fruits. Paul's actually drawing on the Old Testament teaching of Leviticus, chapter 23, verses 9 to 14, concerning the, the feast of the first fruits. And what Paul is saying is this, that there is a resurrection harvest that has begun. There's a a resurrection harvest that has begun. And and Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of that harvest that emerges. You know, so the harvest occurs over a period of time. Those first fruits that first emerge promise a coming harvest. What Paul is saying is that there is an organic unity between the first fruits of the harvest, Jesus' resurrection... Those first fruits which emerge, and the rest of the harvest, our resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the believer's bodily resurrection are not two events, but two episodes of the same event. Because they are not two harvests, they are of one harvest. That Christ has been raised tells us that the harvest of the bodily resurrection of believers has begun. Christ's bodily resurrection is not simply a sign, but is the actual beginning of the harvest. The resurrection of believers has actually begun with Christ's resurrection. Christian, the first installment of your promised inheritance has already been paid in Jesus' resurrection from the grave. He'll bring the next and final payment at his return. Because Jesus has conquered the grave, you will Two that 's paul 's point, so what? what what does that mean for you? It means that you can live with courage and hope. It means that you can boldly proclaim Jesus Christ with joy. Death has been defeated, love has won. Christ has conquered the grave, and we will too. The resurrection of Christ prompted and spurred the first Christians to go on and share the good news, even in the face of death. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. From 1 Corinthians 15, we have seen, we've come to see, I hope, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the expectation of the Old Testament. Go back to Leviticus. That's what Paul does. It's the expectation of the Old Testament, and it's the message of the new. It's what the apostles preached and proclaimed. And because Jesus got up from the dead, Paul says, we will too. All of God's children have not yet been brought to faith. When all of God's people have come to faith, then our Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will give his people physical resurrected bodies, bodies like his, and so never die again. Until that day, brothers and sisters, go and tell others, that because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, their sins can be forgiven. They can be justified in God's sight. Go and tell others that because Jesus Christ has been declared to be the son of God in power, they too can be sons and daughters of God by faith. Go and tell others that Jesus, because Jesus has conquered the enslaving power of sin in his resurrection, that they too can live to God in newness of life. Go and tell others that because Jesus Christ has been raised in glory, they too can be raised up in glory on the last day. Go and tell others the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And don't forget that other matter, which is also of first importance, that on the third day, he was raised too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your gracious proclamation to us through your scriptures. That your son would be raised in glory. That death is no longer an undefeated foe, but now death is a defeated foe. Father, we pray and ask that you would grant us us courage and faith to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. To delight in his resurrection from the grave. Thank you for vindicating him. Proving to us in his resurrection that he was perfectly righteous, and that he is our Savior. Oh, Father, give us hope, hope of our future of living with him in the glorious new heavens and the new earth. We pray and ask uh, that you would cause us to see in Christ's resurrection our whole hope and our whole salvation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our next song is entitled See What a Morning. It can be found on in the insert in your bulletin. Let me encourage you to go ahead and, and pull that insert out. As we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which not only tells us of Jesus' death, but also of his resurrection as it promises us he will, he will return, because he's alive, as we prepare for that, let's continue to rejoice in the truth that our Savior got up from the grave by singing, See What a Morning. Uh, Please stand as we sing.